CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are one week, I guess one week and minus one day from the 2022 midterm. And uh, it's looking, you know, kind of in, in, in line with the recent holiday, it's looking kind of spooky at the moment. Uh, I don't think there's any other way to to describe it. We're going to get into that. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, a number of other issues like this completely insane story from the West Coast about how this feral QAnon lunatic almost murdered the Speaker of the House's husband, who's, you know, he looks like a pretty vital 82-year-old, but 82's old. 82's old. You know, you get hit, you get, someone strikes you in the head with a hammer, there's a good chance you're going to die from that. And, you know, much love to all of our octogenarian listeners, but the 80 plus year old bodies is, is is kind of fragile, right? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, all the polling stuff and the upcoming elections. And l- let me just say, you know, one thing that um, I did a post about this a couple days ago, that one kind of weird thing about the midterm dynamic over the last couple weeks is that the polling averages have been absolutely flooded by partisan GOP polls. And those run the gamut from polls that are literally sponsored by like the campaign or a Republican group or something like that. Then you have other pollsters that are, you know, uh, explicitly, you know, kind of Republican oriented or just ones that like, you know, there's this one pollster, Trafalgar, that, you know, always has Republicans doing like seven or eight points better than, than, than other sort of legitimate polls now. One thing that has happened just in the last day or so, that is, well, the thing that's happened is that has kind of changed. Um, In the last 24 hours or so, we have had what we hadn't had in a while, which is a number of generic ballot polls from serious pollsters. And they basically show a similar story. They suggest a pretty significant turn in the Republican direction over the last, you know, Two weeks, something like that, give or take. Uh, it's not a hundred percent, you know, kind of uh, unanimous, so to speak. Um, but just, just to just to give you a sense, um, there is there's a CNN poll uh, that came out this morning that has Republicans up by four points among likely voters. There is a Quinnipiac poll that has uh, Republicans up 
four points among registered voters. Uh, there, those, those are the two. Um, I mean, there's also a a Marist poll uh, that has there's kind of an asterisk on this one. It's basically they have it dead even. And then actually, there's yet another poll for Politico by uh, an outfit called Morning Consult, which is one of these like you know online pollsters, but one that's developed a, a pretty decent reputation over the last few years. They have Democrats up by five. So if you're kind of if you're look if you're trying to look on the bright side, that's your poll, right? Um, but overall. I think these tell a pretty common story. There's been a, a a a pretty big move towards Republicans over the last couple of weeks. Now, what does that mean, big picture? I think that means big picture that um, Democrats really need to pull a rabbit out of the hat to hold on to the House. Anything's possible, but the odds don't look great in the House, and the odds I would say look maybe you know depending like. 50-50 for the Senate. Um, one thing I did notice uh, this morning is there's actually a new poll out. I can't remember whether it's, maybe it was Maris, you know, a, a, a legit pollster that had uh, John Fetterman up four points. The Monmouth poll. Yeah, Monmouth poll uh, in Pennsylvania and, and has showed pretty little change over the last few weeks. Now, that is over the last few weeks that, as I said, we have seen this shift towards the GOP. It's also after they had this debate where Fetterman visibly struggled to uh, you know, hear hear the questions because of this audio auditory processing thing he has as as seems to be a transient thing that he'll eventually recover from, but from the stroke. And uh and you know, he speaks in a halting way. And you know, we can say all we want about it's temporary and his cognition is fine and people have disabilities. But the reality is, if you are not really plugged into politics and you don't have strong ideological commitments and you see a debate like that, that's entirely possible that's going to have a big effect. At least this one poll suggests that it hasn't had a big effect. So, I think the Senate is the Senate remains uh, unclear. I don't think we know what's going to happen with the Senate, and um, you know, it, I think it is much more likely than it was a month ago. Certainly, that Republicans could could take the majority in the Senate, and they could take the majority by a significant amount. You know, one of the dynamics of this cycle is that pretty much throughout you have had a large number of races that are very, very close. Like I looked last night and there were seven races that were within three points of each other on the uh, 538 averages. And by most definitions, a three-point difference in a poll, that's a jump ball. That's a tie. I mean, it's not literally a tie, but that could go either way. So, and I, I, I mentioned this in a post uh, last night that it is entirely possible that next week Republicans could have a majority of 53 or 54 seats. That is entirely possible. It is also possible Democrats could have a majority of 52 or 53 or even 54. I think that's less likely. But if you just look at the polls, again, You've got lots of races that are basically jump balls. And what the Democrats have to be hoping now is that that um, this shift in the uh, trajectory of the race um, 
will not really affect it's basically like five or six key race key senate races that this that that control of the senate is is going to come down to is that plausible yeah it's it's totally plausible um is it a is it as comfortable a situation as it seemed like a month ago not even close um and that's where we are and that's what we're going to talk about and we're also going to talk about you know what I guess is is just part of American politics right now. When you have you know like the 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 most recent assassination attempt of the uh, of the Democratic Speaker of the House, and you know another thing we're going to talk about is the way that it is it is treated. You have lots of big name Republican elected officials joking about the incident publicly. You know <laughs> that's happening. And in the larger sort of like, you know, Republican influencer world, uh, you also have, there are a series of conspiracy theories out there that have, how can I put this? Because again, we've talked about before that, you know, belief is a funny thing. You say you believe something, do you really believe it? Or you just say it because believing it, saying you believe it is a form of aggression. In any case... Lots of Republicans have decided that the attacker was either a, a kind of a hippie weirdo, or maybe there's something more sinister. Maybe it wasn't an attack at all. When in fact, back in the real world, this is yet another person jacked up over QAnon conspiracy theories about COVID and the rigged election, and all the other stuff, this is just out there. So for a lot of the country, it's not even clear cut that this is the result of the years of Republican incitement to violence and the QAnon movement, which is, you know, celebrated and encouraged by Republican office holders around the country. You know, we know that in heated political times, some people will just do crazy things, resort to violence. And we know there was this case, I, I, I don't remember how many years ago, four or five years ago, maybe maybe three or four years ago, where uh, this guy who was a Democrat and was angry at the Republican, you know, at the Republican Party, opened fire on this at this, you know, congressional baseball game and, and seriously wounded uh, Steve Scalise, the uh, majority uh, minority whip in, in, in the House. So it can happen on either side, but we know it does happen <laughs> regularly with Republicans. And why is that? Well, maybe because it because incitements to violence are a regular part of Republican messaging. But even if there might have been some, you know, not that I'd be optimistic, there'd be some kind of reckoning. But again, a lot of a lot for a lot of people for Fox News watchers, this wasn't even a, an, an anti-democratic person. This wasn't someone who's been, you know, posting QAnon conspiracy theories uh, on social media for the last however many years. It's just, this is just normal now in our politics. And it is, it is embraced by really the entire Republican Party. 
not every Republican is out there defending this or denying it happened. Some will say, oh, you know, violence is never the answer, blah, 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 blah. But Donald Trump is out there denying it happened. He's spreading the conspiracy theories. And you don't see anybody saying any, saying that Donald Trump, Trump should stop that. So again, this is just the world we are living in at the moment. So before we get to the rest of our episode, I want to remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Temperatures are dropping, leaves are falling, and the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But everyone on Team Cold Brew is still iced, for, for them, it's still iced coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your flannels, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. Ready to savor every shiver? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, Kate Riga, um, what you thinking? Yeah, I think we should start with the Paul Pelosi attack, um, which I'm I'm sure our listeners are kind of well versed in by this point. But the the broad outline is, you know, early, early two o'clock hour in the morning. This guy breaks in through a sliding glass door, um, comes upon Paul Pelosi in the bedroom, um, who Paul Pelosi said he was asleep at the time. They like start having a conversation. And this guy, now identified as David DePoppy, is asking where Nancy is. She's in D.C. at the time. Um, and he says he'll wait. At some point during this conversation, Paul is able to get into the bathroom where he calls 911. Um, DePoppy is aware that he has called 911, but later told the police that, like during the Revolutionary War, he had no it was not an option to surrender to tyranny. So they kind of kept talking. Um, the dispatcher kind of heard over the line that something was not, it was not okay. Sent over response. Police were there quickly enough to see the men kind of grappling with the hammer. They said, hey, drop it. And then DePape kind of pulls the hammer back, smashes it into Pelosi's head who collapses. And then the police tackle him. And then they find all the kind of worrying stuff afterward. They find zip ties and, you know, a journal and rope. And they hear from him that he is going to break Nancy Pelosi's kneecaps. And, you know, and then after that, it was not that hard. You know, I was kind of scrolling down the WordPress that was in this guy's name. And I mean, it was it it's deranged, you know, I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semitic, anti-women, anti-democratic stuff on there, but it's also just scary misspellings and weird, you know, big brothers watching you and weird stuff crossed out. I mean, it just, you know, it all it all gives off a feeling of unwell kind of comprehensively. It it is. I mean, this guy is a I don't want to say interesting, you know, an 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 interesting example of the type in that it is true that's that it seems about a decade ago he was sort of like you know, San Francisco hemp dealer had some tie to some sort of nudist activism. So it's not like he was like a Democrat, but he wasn't a conservative. And then from the people who have deconstructed this and have looked at all the stuff, it seemed like, or what is it, like 2014, 
he kind of shifted and went, you know, full into the QAnon everything. And I think, you know, what we always need to remember is that it's not the most together people who go this far. You know, that's kind of a given, right? I mean, you can be a total uh, Nazi, terrible person and totally into this stuff. But in most cases, if you've got your life together, you're going to say like, I'm going to let someone else kidnap Nancy. I'm going to hang back and just post my memes, right? It's sort of reminiscent of uh, that guy, a few Cesar something, you know, who sent all the, all the, uh, you know, bombs to Democrats. Mm. And remember, and when they found him, he had his, he was like living out of his van that was like covered with, you know, kind of like a, it was like a MAGA shrine basically. Um, So the fact that he's like a bit out there, that's, that's normal. Right. Yeah. Doesn't I mean, doesn't mean I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I fully agree. And also you would think if someone was really kind of carrying out this very calculated strike against the Speaker of the House, <laughs> he would, you know, bother to find out what coast she's on first. <laughs> right. well, there was actually I don't know if you noticed that there was one not to make light of this, but in 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 the criminal complaint, you know, the initial filing mm-hmm. uh, that the that the FBI does just basically to kind of keep him in jail, um, they provided a limited account of the sort of the Mirandized debrief of him. And one of the funny thing was he wanted to tie Pelosi up because carrying the backpack, you know, kind of like the, the Gretchen Whitmer backpack, right? The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the kidnapping kit, carrying the backpack, he was tired. He wanted to take a nap. Right. You know, which shows you the sort of the uh, level the guy's operating at. Right. And he was facing here an asleep, unarmed, you know, 82 year old and let that person call the police. I mean, it (laughs) clearly was not the most airtight plan. But, you know, nevertheless, Paul Pelosi underwent a skull fracture as well as, you know, it seems kind of like defensive wounds to his hands and his arm. Um, You know, when I first heard this, I couldn't stop thinking about how just awful it must be for Nancy Pelosi because first of all you have to hear from someone that your spouse has been attacked you know of course we don't know how badly at first we know from that complaint that he was at least well enough to be communicating with the police officers and the ambulance on the way to the hospital but you know you don't mess around with brain stuff you have no idea certainly not at that age yeah. Things can things can decompensate very quickly um, for someone that age. I mean, and one you know what I think what I think uh, informed the news coverage is that the very first reports were injured but expected to make a full recovery. Yep. And that kind that of that was you from hear, her office too. Right. When mm-hmm. you hear that, you're like, okay, you know, he's not going to die. He's not going to be blah 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 blah. But I would imagine. Um, when you first hear like, well, he was attacked and, and a guy hit, uh, slammed a hammer into his skull. I'm sure you're less confident if you're the family that everything's going to be okay. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so yes, I'm sure it was uh, terrifying. And I'm sure as a spouse, you have, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say guilt, but I'm sure any spouse would kind of feel like my, my, this happened to my partner because of my work. I not know. that not that I'm responsible, but you know, at right. some basic level, you're gonna you're going to um, you're gonna feel that. And and kind of as I was saying, it's already yesterday's news. 
Totally. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot because everything about this story is kind of crafted in a way that should give it maximal media juice. You know, it obviously involves famous high profile people. It's scary. It's dramatic. It includes kind of salacious is not the right word, but stark details like a hammer, like a glass door shattering, like him being surprised in bed, almost, you know, kind of cinematic shading on it. And like you say, it's it's almost gone. Even the day that it was kind of coming into light, I noticed that on other kind of big news days, you know, you could go on Twitter and everything you see is about the same story. That was not even true on day one of the Pelosi attack. And obviously... We're, you know, days away from the midterms. There's a lot. It's a cluttered environment right now. But it always struck me as weird. And then the other thing that struck me that I want to talk about with you is that I thought by day's end of when we kind of found out who this guy was and it it didn't take. I mean, all you have to do is like Google his name and kind of find his online footprint, more or less. There was not a kind of cohesive democratic push to tie this to the rhetoric from the right. There still has not been that much of it. Biden did it. And you've kind of had a spattering of democratic lawmakers here and there. But I would not say that it has become definitely not kind of a salient closing message for the midterms and not even really a a cohesive talking point. Like you say, there was much more violence is never the answer kind of bullshit from Republicans taking no responsibility for it. And then, I mean, and we'll get into the, the kind of more gruesome element of Republicans who are using this for other means. But what do you think about that? Because I, I've heard some kind of counter counter pushing that campaigns are worried that if they kind of capitalize on this attack as here's a picture perfect example of the danger that Republicans pose, it'll stir up the crime conversation, which has been pretty amenable to Republicans in the way it's, you know, in the way that I think big media outlets have been willing to kind of portray this often nuanced data. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are reasons why they might not want to get into it. But I think it's I think, I think it is it is silly, if they think that that raises the salience of the crime issue in in a way that it is, I think, equally similar when Democrats basically say, oh, you're anti-crime, but you're also supporting the January 6 people. I mean, yes, it's crime. And and but that's understanding things a little a little mm-hmm. too literally. Um, it is not the crime thing is I'm I, I see things happening I didn't see before. I heard uh Someone I know got mugged. Uh, there's more shoplifting. Things are things feel chaotic. Uh, certainly for most Republicans, and I think for for a lot of kind of non-political people, they're not worried that Jan Six people are going to show up at their house. They're not. It, it's not the same thing, and this isn't the same thing. Um, I think the I think the challenge is that um, some of this is on Democrats, but in a case like this, you kind of need the general public and the media to be going berserk over it. It's 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 kind of hard to run with that ball yourself at some level. Um, 
especially, uh, you know, again, that is the significance of what we discussed before, that the sort of the Fox News world are, are, are already has a counter narrative. Yep. Like, oh, you're saying it was a Trump supporter. You're saying it's, a, you know, no, 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 no. This is some, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, Grateful Dead uh, merchandise guy from San Francisco. So it's suddenly it's a it's a, you know, kind of he said, she said kind of thing. Um, but again, I mean, I, you know, th- that's an illustration of how conditioned uh, the national press is by the Republican Party. And I think the Republican response that's been most interesting to me, even more than like, you know, the the homophobic thing that this was a male prostitute or um, a sex worker or that, you know, some some other kind of totally fabrication like that. I'm almost more interested by we heard Yunkin and Carrie Lake did this the clearest, but when they just totally reduced it to a punchline, you know, Yunkin at least hedged a little bit where he said, uh, you know, uh, violence is not not okay. We heard about this attack and, you know, and now we're going to send Nancy Pelosi back to California to be with him, which is like, oh yeah, you're clearly really torn up about this. And then Carrie Lake did, did some, you know, Nancy Pelosi has all this protection. Well, her California house doesn't have that much protection. But then she goes on Tucker Carlson to talk about it. And I'm, I'm reading this quote. She says, We can't talk about all these issues because the media has told us they're prohibited. You know, you can't talk about vaccines. You can't talk about elections. You can't talk about Paul Pelosi. Now you can't talk about Nancy Pelosi. And it's like, what are you talking about? I mean, you made a joke about an, an old man who was attacked seriously. The crowd yucked it up, thought it was hilarious. And then I guess the smattering of people saying, hey, that sucks is enough for you to go on Tucker Carlson and be like, and now we can't even talk about the Speaker of the House. I mean, it's so, like you said, it's just the machine is so well-oiled that you've got the conspiracy theory tentacles. You've got the well, she's evil, so it doesn't matter. We do not have to feel compassion for her or any other Democrat. This is funny. And then you've also got I guess, like the Trump kind of occupying the middle ground of being like, I don't know, it's fishy, but, you know, it's bad, I guess, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the overriding thing is it doesn't matter. It's not something that is consequential in the political dialogue. It doesn't matter. Now, you know, obviously, if if Paul Pelosi had, uh, you know, slipped in a puddle walking down the street, and injured his head, we could, you know, it would be sad, but no one would think it has any political consequence. He just fell down. And I think what we can see is all of these storylines are different versions of saying it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with the political world. Yeah, I'm sorry he had to go to the hospital. Like, you know, don't wish any, but like, it doesn't matter. And um, this is just you know a small amount of this is the sort of the coarsening of our politics and stuff like that but not really not, mostly not this is that uh this is main this is mainstream thinking about politics for people in the Republican party and that is just 
that is something that we are going to have to deal with for a very long time. We as a country, I mean, especially we as Demo, you know, <laughs> for people who aren't Republicans have to deal with it in a more in a more uh, in a more pronounced way, but for the whole country. And the other thing I do want to add before we move on is it really can't be understated how much just the vicious misogyny towards Nancy Pelosi plays in here, because obviously the right wing likes to demonize all Democrats, you know, but there are different levels going on. And there's a reason why Nancy Pelosi and AOC are such kind of unique objects of hatred for the right in a way that Biden, who they are, you know, eager to call senile and sleepy and cognitively unwell, it's just not the same thing. It's not the same way that they call these women just evil, not political opponents, but just incurably evil. I think the way that I would characterize it is that they have contempt for Biden, but most Republicans aren't angry at Biden. You know, they, it doesn't even come, you know, you know what I mean? They're not like, mm -hmm. oh, Biden, I'm so upset, you know, but with, but as you say, with Nancy Pelosi, with Hillary in, mm -hmm. in, you know, in a, you know, some of the tonality is different. You're right. It, it is, there is a depth of demonization that is, that is, that is perceptibly different. I mean, you had, um, you had something like that with Barack Obama, but you know, Barack Obama's black guy, right? I mean, you know, it's not it's not rocket science. Right. Oh, and, and I guess just to kind of cap it off, last we heard officially is that Paul Pelosi had undergone uh, the surgery to repair his skull and that he is still in the hospital, but came through it, you know, okay, it seems. So, you know, despite just the Republican ghoulishness about this, you know, at the very least, it seems like he's going to be okay. And that is, I mean, thank God, right? That that does not seem at all assured when you learned the details of this attack. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would assume, I mean, we don't know. I would certainly assume any kind of, I assume, I hope that he did not have a traumatic brain injury, that that's a very specific thing about injury to mm -hmm. the brain. But whenever a, someone that age has a trauma to the head in the neighborhood, you know, in the skull is cracked open in the neighborhood of the brain, they're going to keep that person under observation for a while. Cause obviously right. that's a very, um, in, just an inherently tenuous, uh, thing, you know, older bodies are fragile. Right. Okay. So we're going to kind of loop back to some of the polling stuff that you were talking about in the intro. And I think where I want to start is this dynamic of the influx of kind of GOP partisan polls that have been really dominating not just the landscape, but also these polling amalgamations, which is the shorthand that a lot of people have been looking to to see where these races are, whether that be, you know, 538 or, or real clear politics. And one thing that I came upon, which I think is interesting, is that it's not just the influx of these either, you know, straight from the Republican campaign or from these kind of GOP aligned outfits. There's also been a dearth of the, the bigger, more traditional news outlet polling, which is at play here. Um, this is from a political article, but it said in 2018, NBC News commissioned 16 polls from Marist College from September to November. This year, they've done no state midterm polls. NBC News has commissioned none. Uh, 
The Times conducted roughly 100 polls, mostly in house races in 2018. This year, they'll have done four house races and five statewides. I mean, that's that's interesting. That's a, a part of it that I don't think has gotten quite as much, you know, chatter as the partisan poll piece. Yeah, I mean, it, the two things interact with each other. You know, um, polls th- and the aggregators have a big part of this. No one, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that, you know, there's CNN poll out, out this morning. Um, in the pre-aggregator world, when there, when there weren't all of these sort of non-standard polls, you know, kind of robocalls and all this kind of stuff, what would happen was that, you know, NBC News comes out with a poll and then the NBC News poll would be discussed for a day or so. And that's why that's why media organizations do polls, basically. I mean, they also do it to find out what's going on, but you do them because it's also, it, it's, it's branding. And what has happened, though, is that because of the aggregators, and I mean, they're not doing anything, you know, wrong, because of the aggregators and the explosion of, um, you know, non-standard, cheaper polling methods, you're just talking about five, you know, where, where's the 538 average? Or where's the RCP average? So, no one's paying attention to like who did what poll. No one cares about that. So, the... So the the value to a media organization of doing a poll has gone down dramatically. And the other part of that is that it has become much more expensive because no one answers the phone. So you have the, you have all of these things, you know, working together and intensif- you know, and, and uh, intensifying each other. So it's a, you know, at, at a certain level, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of Democrats who think that you know, Republicans are kind of flooding the zone with these polls uh, to game the averages, uh, to demoralize voters. Um, you know, it's hard for me to tell because, you know, for, um, you know, for one organization that's doing polls, yes, they're doing kind of relatively cheap polls, but is it really, what are, what are they getting out of it? Are they, are they you know, are they so invested in in demoralizing Democrats that their kind of one poll out of the fifty polls is going to kind of add to it or whatever? It doesn't quite add up, um, but it certainly is the eff- effect. And I do, I don't think it's one way or another. I don't think it's as clear cut as some Democrats think. But these things do affect conventional wisdom a lot. And that comes through in press coverage and stuff like that. So the right. you know, whole thing is a bit of a mystery to me. That's kind of how I've been thinking about it too, because on some level, you're like, the point of demoralizing Democrats, right, would be that people don't bother to vote, that they're like, this this guy's dead in the water. I'm not going to waste my time. The people who are not going to bother to vote are also people who are not going to be paying attention on any kind of granular level. Like the people who are tracking the ins and outs of each poll are pre- they're pretty much guaranteed to vote already, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. these are the people who are losing years off their life because they're so freaking stressed out right now. Like that's not <laughs> someone who's going to sit out an election. So then you have to think that the only possible of demoralizing effect would have to trickle down to the politically uninterested via how this stuff is getting covered. And there... I can see it a little bit more because all the coverage for weeks has been red wave flavored, even um, 
you know, I'm sure you'll remember, I think you tweeted about it, but like that New York Times collection of polls that overall was like a pretty good picture for Democrats and still had some kind of doomer Democratic headline. Yeah, I mean, just for 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 listeners, what this was, and this is actually one of the things that I I found pretty striking over the last couple of weeks, is that twice New York Times has its partnership with the Siena poll, which is that partnership has been has been really pretty good over the last few cycles. It's really one of the ones that I I, I look at most closely, and um, so. Uh, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, they did four house races. And these were supposed to be, you know, kind of key swing districts. And when the results came back, one of them was tied and Democrats were ahead in the three others. Now, that doesn't mean Democrats are going to win the House, right? And I think that uh, overall, when they published that story, they're it was still a reasonable interpretation of the overall situation that Democrats are really behind the eight ball, right? It's it's a rough environment for Democrats. But what they ended up having to do is like these four polls show how Democrats are really struggling when in fact, as you said, Kate, they didn't show that at all. They actually showed Democrats doing doing surprisingly well. Um and you, you know, one of the things is sort of like you at at some level you've already you've already decided what the storyline is and you're going to make it work regardless. I think a more generous read of that is the overall story is that Democrats are struggling. And just because we did four polls that show something different doesn't mean that the overall story is different. And we already paid for the polls. So what are we going to do? Right. (laughs) Um, You know, just the thing about all the red wave stuff is like I've, I've said it before, but this idea of kind of like Democrats are losing it all. It's just those polls that we had, you know, kind of late summer that showed like Fetterman up by 11 and, and Mark Kelly up by 13. I mean, they were never going to win those races by those kind of margins. Like the only comparable race that we're seeing like that is Pennsylvania governor where it's Shapiro versus Mastriano and Shapiro has like a double digit lead. And that's because Republicans have basically not paid for anything for Mastriano at all. I mean, that's what a race looks like when you have a guy who's like kind of a kook, who has no name recognition and no money at all, at all. That's what happens. But in any other race, when you're going to put resources behind a candidate in a clutch Senate race, that is going to be a close race. That is, I mean, it just is, unless you've got like a Roy Moore situation. Even flawed candidates of the type of like Oz or Walker are still going to hang in, you know, so this kind of idea of like Democrats have blown it all and Republicans are getting all this momentum. It comes from a true trend, which is that in some of these races, Democrats were enjoying what I thought at the time seemed like inflated leads. And now it's kind of come back to earth and all the races we thought were going to be close are very close. But that is, I mean, stepping back from these like momentum pieces, which I know why news outlets like to write them because we love a narrative, right? We love making facts into a story. And but stepping back from that, where are we now? Right? The Senate is basically a toss up. The the races, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada are quite quite close. Like we always and Georgia, like we always thought we're going to be close. So just I don't know, just for our listeners if who have a predilection towards doom at these times, like we never thought it was realistic that like Democrats were going to friggin' crush the Senate and we're going to come out with huge majorities. That was just never realistic. And where we are now, 
is probably where we kind of would have guessed that we would be this time last year, except maybe we would think be surprised that Republicans weren't just cleanly leading in both chambers across the board. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, you know, one one thing, I mean, look, you can be doom and gloom if you think that the Democrats might be about to lose both chambers of Congress. That is entirely possible. And that will be a very negative outcome. I think that what you see in this kind of, uh, you know, toxic, often toxic relationship between the national press and the Democratic Party and Democrats nationwide is there is this great desire to say, how did they blow it? What did they do to themselves to bring this terrible thing upon them? And I, I don't say this as a way of, of making any excuses or anything like that. But as Kate said, the reality is, if you take all the facts on the table, what you would expect in this election is to have at least a moderate Republican wave where they pick up seats in both chambers and the House is close enough that you'd expect them to take control of the House. You know, the, so the fact that we are, that we were thinking that um, other outcomes were or are possible. That's the outlier. That's the that is the um, that is the the strange thing. I mean, there's the, there's again. I I have all I have always thought that um, you know one of the one of the takes on political media coverage is the reporters are mo- mainly Democrats, and so they're biased in favor of Democrats. I think the reality is a little different. The reality is that. Yes, certainly journalists are more democratic than the than the population at large. There's no question about that. Kate and I, who've who've worked in different media contexts, can can tell you that. That's that's definitely the case. But what that does is it creates this dynamic A, where reporters are usually falling all over themselves, not to be biased, and also because they're constantly being accused of being biased that there's some overcompensating. But the other thing is they're kind of, they end up being kind of part of the same psychodrama that is that is where a lot of Democrats live, frankly. What did we do wrong? You know, this kind of, and I want to say there's, there's, there's a couple meanings of doom and gloom. The result of this election may be a bad result. There's no question about that. But there's a different sort of tonal quality when you're like, oh, how did we bring this on ourselves? What were all the missed opportunities? Blah, 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 blah. You know, sometimes you lose an election because a lot of people in the country are in a bad place. And, uh, you know, there's certainly there is... um, there is a stream of democratic thinking, or I wouldn't even say democratic thinking, it's more kind of left-leaning, but left Democrat, that basically says in so many words that the reason there's Trumpism is because Democrats don't run good enough campaigns or because Democrats are not clearly enough a working class party. Ergo, there's Trumpism. Now, I spent a lot of this cycle yammering on about this abortion pledge that I'm incredibly disappointed that that Democrats didn't get it together on. So it's not that I don't think Democrats don't make mistakes, but Trumpism exists because of real things in our country and mainly because like half the country believes that stuff. It's this kind of weird myopia that um, Democrats 
seem inclined to where the bad things are actually permutations of their own actions, right? I mean, you even see it in that whole kind of like, don't amplify Trump. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's only Trump because liberals are like talking about what he said. It's a weird myopia. So, you know, look, the, the result of this election may be pretty bad, but that's because the country is in a bad place. It's not, you should not see that starting from how did Democrats mess up. Right. Okay. And the other thing I want to talk about, which I don't know, hopefully optimistically will help maybe be somewhat of a balm for people's like super doom and gloom anxiety, which is that I think sometimes we talk about, we've been talking about the elections as if, you know, the election is the end point, right? That's all that we're talking about. That's all that we're building to. So let's just take a few minutes and kind of explore what these scenarios would look like based on who wins, what chamber, what splits there are, because this election is important, of course. Next to 2024, it just pales meaningless, in comparison. Meaningless, yep, yep. And so I think kind of walking through that might at least ratchet down the direness that some some of our listeners might be feeling a bit. So, okay, let's kind of start with the what looks like the least likely scenario right now. Let's say Democrats buck expectation, buck the midterm pattern and get themselves added to the microscopic list of first midterm cycles where the president's party does not just not lose seats. It gains them. Huge triumph, blue wave. Everyone was confounded. Nate Silver is humiliated. That's what happens. Okay. So they win both houses. And then, you know, unless they won somehow 10 more extra seats that we didn't actually think were competitive, we're going to have a similar situation to what we have last term, which is Democrats are going to have control in the Senate by either, you know, nothing, a 50-50 kind of Kamala Harris tie break, or maybe let's say uh, the rosiest scenario would be maybe one or two more seats. I think we can kind of see what that looks like because we basically lived it. You know, yeah. it would be last term similar, perhaps at best with a little bit more of a cushion for, you know, difficult senators. Yeah, I, I look, I, I, I see it this way. You know, there's a lot of talk like, oh, there's going to be investigations and there's going to be this and maybe they'll impeach the president or they'll impeach Merrick Garland and all this kind of stuff. Honestly, who, who cares? I don't really care about that. It's a hassle. It's all the kind of it's annoying and it's blah, 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 blah. Say they impeach Merrick Garland. He's not going to be convicted. And and frankly, I would advise Democrats like, you know, kind of put on a minimal defense. He's not going to be convicted. Whatever, whatever. There are there are a couple things that are very important. There is a good chance that a Republican, and it only has to be the House, Democrats could hold the Senate and this would still happen, that House Republicans would for, force a debt default in 2023. That is a big, almost existential danger. The Democrats have to, they need, they can and they need to take that weapon away during the lame duck session of Congress. There's going to be resistance to it. My great fear is that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin will refuse. And if they do refuse, there's nothing Democrats can do. That's a big risk. Um, anything a Republican Congress passes, Joe Biden will veto. So the 
there are some there are some really you know and i'm sure there'll be government shutdowns and all of that is annoying and it hurts people um and a lot of innocent people will run up big legal bills because they're being investigated by uh jim jordan and whatever but those are not going to you know change our lives the debts the the debt limit thing is is potentially life-changing. And so um, assuming the Democrats at least lose the House, they need to deal with this during the, uh, during the lame duck session. But again, I 100% agree. It's all about 2024. It's all about 2024. And um, that's why I've, I've, aside from the debt limit thing, and again, this isn't me being Pollyannish, the country is in terrible risk and has been for several years. It will continue being. Um, Lots of terrible things are happening. My only point is that Republican control of the Congress for the next two years in itself doesn't really change things that much. As Kate says, it's about 2024. Yes. However, you have broken my game. So where I was initially was saying, what if Democrats win all of Congress and then you yes. got into the debt oh, sorry. ceiling? Yes, that's okay. Yes. But that's okay. fine. Okay. They win all of Congress. It's kind of like last term. They can, it'd be huge, right? They could legislate. They could come back to some stuff that they couldn't get done before. If they have a couple buffer seats, they could probably do more build back better stuff that Mansion and Cinema wouldn't allow for. Uh, they could nominate judges apace. If there's a Supreme Court vacancy arises, no problemo getting another person. Okay. Everything's great. That's if if Democrats win both. Now, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is to me, the difference between Democrats winning, losing one house and losing no, and holding. Okay. The difference between Democrats holding both and losing one is that gap feels much larger than Democrats winning one, losing one house versus losing both. Because if If either flips to Republicans, legislating is not going to happen aside from the must pass bills. You know, there is not going to be any kind of cooperate. It's just not going to happen. Nothing's going to pass, basically. So in the case of losing one chamber, Democrats would obviously rather keep the Senate, right? Because nominations, you can do federal judiciary, you can do Supreme Court, you can do executive branch. All of those things are simple minority thanks to a combination of Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell blowing up the filibuster for various things. You know, so they they can at least notch successes in that space. And then, as you say, Republicans are going to House Republicans would spend all their time doing stupid investigations and making Hunter Biden's life miserable and the debt ceiling scare. Right now, in the scenario where those are flipped, you know, I think maybe what the pundits predict least, which would be, say, Republicans flip the Senate, but Democrats hold the House. We're looking at a similar situation, except no judicial nominations. No, uh, you know, if a Supreme Court vacancy arises through death or retirement, we know that Mitch McConnell is going to pull a Merrick Garland and not let that seat be filled. So that is kind of our options. And then if Republicans win both, it's going to be... Similar, they'll pass a lot of red meat culture stuff. Biden will have to veto it. They'll probably try to make it painful for him to veto it by attaching important stuff to dumb stuff. And and, and that's kind of what we'll be looking at. But importantly, and, and Josh, you said this, but I do want to reiterate, even if Republicans win all of Congress, you, our listeners, do not have to worry about, you know, Biden being impeached and removed from office. There is just virtually no chance that Republicans would get enough seats 
in the Senate where you have to convict with a two thirds majority. I mean, I don't think that those margins yeah, really unless you're going to get 67 senators. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's that's not going to and and that's why I I do think Democrats need to kind of internalize when Republicans say we might impeach uh, Merrick Garland, we might just I think we you just have to say like okay, right. <laughs> go for it because I know the Democrats still respond to that like they they clench up and it's foreboding. What do you mean you're going to impeach Merrick? What do you mean you're going to like whatever? Who cares? You know, that is just like take the power of that um, away. And, and, you know, the one the one issue is and I think this is where um, these things do count is that if you lose a lot of Senate seats, it's there's the um, 2024 is a replay of 2018. Right. Um, Where which, you know, which was a decent. Uh, a decent uh, year for um, uh, for Democrats. So basically, you might not be able to make up ground, you know, in in twenty twenty four. Even if you have a good year, there might not be enough seats to really, to, you know, to really make up ground. Right, um, because twenty eighteen was a good year for Democrats, but they didn't win the Senate. Still, no, it's true. they only won it's the true. House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. Um, I, I guess the point is, you don't want to fall too far behind because, right. like, even like here, here's an example. Um, there is um, at at one level, it doesn't matter if Republicans get a you know thirty seat margin in the House or a two seat uh, margin in the House. Um, but it it does make a difference in the sense that it's a lot easier to win back the House in two years if it's a two seat Republican majority. That that's where it that's where it matters. The other piece that does come into play in the House is in a lot of states where Democrats had any control over drawing lines, they crafted these districts in a way that in a advantageous environment for Democrats, they do really well. And in a kind of red wave environment, they could lose a lot of seats. So I think there's also a dynamic where if Democrats lose a lot of House seats, there'll be a lot of coverage of like, Lost eight million seats, and of course that would be bad. But a lot of the stra- the Democratic strategies in these states they control was the idea that instead of kind of loading all of their people into one district and making that a super safe Democratic hold forever, spreading it out more so these seats are like Democrats plus four or five, which in a red wave year means that they could go the other way. But in a advantageous year, then you get the benefit of getting a lot more seats for your buck. So that's also a dynamic that's at play here. Right, right, right. Well, we will, um, in our next episode, we are going to, we will know what is in the, in the wrapped up box. Oh, isn't that creepy to think about? Although I'll, I'll tell you though, we may not know, um, we may not, it's entirely possible that we will not know who controls the Senate. Probably not. Yeah. Because you're going to have uh, ongoing counting. You have the possibility of um, a runoff in uh, Georgia. Pretty high. Um, it's, yeah. I mean, almost, almost, I would say, a likelihood that you'll have a runoff in Georgia. One, one of them has to get 50% to, to, um, to rule that out. But in any case, I think we'll probably know the big picture. 
by then. Or at least know more than we do now. Yeah, yeah. more than we do now. <laughs> more than we do now. So uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com uh, with the promo code TPM. And we have a we have an election event tomorrow at 6 p.m. So that's tomorrow, Thursday, Thursday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. I'm going to be with uh, Steve Clemens and uh, Adam Jenelson. Uh, and we're going to talk about how the midterm, how the midterms went, what was what the Democrats did right, what they did wrong, um, some about the internal dynamics of the Senate. You know, why wasn't there a push on Roe, you know, kind of a, a Roe and reform pledge? So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, it is tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. And uh, I think the way we do it is... Um, you know, we we recommend a a donate, you know, five ten dollar donation or something like that. But you don't have to give one; it's free. Go to the website. Go to talkingpointsmemo.com. Uh, you will see a link uh, somewhere on the site. You RSVP, and then you join us for the Zoom event. So uh, check it out; it'll be it'll be very interesting. All right, and All right. after that, we'll we'll see you in a few days and yep. a few monumental days. Monumental days. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.